there is no such thing as objective reality. There is only reality as we interpret it. And when you wrap your head around this truth, life shifts for you. You can no longer live as if you're a non-emotional, unbiased creature. Even our very eyeballs, which are attached to our nervous system, are not actually seeing what is there when we look at something. We're seeing our brain's best interpretation at what it's perceiving. Welcome to the Conscious Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Griff. I'm a conscious serial entrepreneur with a passion for wealth creation, sovereignty and natural law, spirituality and consciousness, financial literacy, commerce, investing, and the game of money. I am the founder of the Level Up Collective, a conscious wealth mastermind in which I lead countless others through the process of unlearning most, if not all, of what we've been taught about the world and the game of money, and then relearning what the rules of this secretive game really are and how we can actually win at it. I was incredibly blessed to stumble across many of the secrets of the 1% at a young age. And rather than keeping it all to myself, I'm on a mission to share this information freely with as many people as I can. This podcast is going to challenge the very fabric of your reality. And at times, you may find yourself running up against some of your deepest unconscious belief systems. I encourage you to give yourself grace, keep an open mind, and never just accept what I say as fact. Always do your own research. I never want you to just assume I am telling the truth. I am not here to convince or teach you anything, but rather to reflect back and remind you of things that somewhere in your consciousness you already know. Take what resonates, discard what doesn't, and enjoy the ride. Now let's get started. What's going on, guys? Super excited for today's masterclass that we're going to be putting out for you. The topic of discussion is going to be the 19 human biases that are destroying your wealth and freedom in 2023. And this is going to be a two-part series because we don't want it to be too, too long. And we got a lot to get into today. So let's go ahead and get right into it. Part one, I'll probably get into the first roughly 10-ish biases. And then part two, we'll get into roughly the last nine-ish biases. And I want to preface this by explaining why I'm getting into human biases and what the hell this has to do with everything that our brand is about, right? Wealth, freedom, your natural rights, spirituality, etc. So I am a firm, firm, firm believer that there is no such thing as objective reality. There is only reality as we interpret it. And when you wrap your head around this truth, life shifts for you. You can no longer live as if you're a non-emotional, unbiased creature. Even our very eyeballs, which are attached to our nervous system, are not actually seeing what is there when we look at something. We're seeing our brain's best interpretation at what it's perceiving. And because of this, humans are put in a very unique position. 
where we have incredible abilities to do things like visualize and manifest and actualize, bring things from the unseen realm to the seen realm. And we seem to be some of the only animals able to do that. But the downside of this is that we are subject to a whole host of different biases and blind spots. And so the purpose of today's two-part masterclass is going to be to help illuminate some of these blind spots for you guys and give you a bit of a roadmap to pay attention to and to look out for. I know when I started to get serious about psychology, neuroscience, and my own biases and blind spots, my life massively changed. And that isn't to say that just having awareness of these things changes your life, but it is to say that you'll now have the opportunity to change your life. Whereas if you were not aware of these things, you don't stand a chance. So let's get into it, guys. Number one is association bias. Association bias refers to this notion that we see similar experiences where they don't necessarily exist because things resemble each other. So the easiest way to explain this is basically that we're constantly looking for patterns and our brains are excellent at pattern recognition. But one of the downsides is that our brains can often give us data and feedback in which we draw the conclusion that certain things are similar to one another and we'll bucket them or group them together when in fact they aren't. This is just our biases getting in the way. And this is particularly the job of the reticular activating system, which is one of the sub faculties of our subconscious or unconscious mind. So let me give you an example or two of association bias. Let's say when you were nine, you were in a particular neighborhood and let's say you had a near-death experience and now you're 29 and you're in a completely different neighborhood, completely different city, etc. But certain visual cues, maybe music set that's playing, the way that the neighborhood is set up, the energy you're feeling reminds you and puts you right back in that situation that you experienced when you were nine. And now you're creating an association where you're probably going to start feeling extremely unsafe. And your brain is connecting all these patterns between I've experienced this before. This happened when I was nine. It didn't turn out well. And this is the same exact thing. Once again, because it's taking the jump from things resembling one another to, oh, this is the same type of experience, therefore the same outcome is going to happen. And that makes a lot of sense evolutionarily. We need that, right? If you almost got eaten by an alligator in the past on the savannah, you definitely want to remember to stay the fuck away from alligators in the future, evolutionarily. But here's the problem. We live in 2023 now, and our biggest problems and concerns are ourselves. We're not in danger anymore, at least not if you're listening to this and you have an iPhone. That isn't our issue anymore. Survival isn't our issue anymore. We have really old parts of our brains that are hundreds of thousands of years old and they're very primal. And so if we look at the topic of wealth, right, because this entire conversation, I'm going to try to tie all these into wealth and freedom so you all can understand how not only is this really solid education on psychology and neuroscience, but it's also should be hopefully really eye-opening in terms of how important these fields are in terms of your relationship to wealth and money and your ability to 
attract and maintain a lot of wealth and freedom in your life. So association bias can really, really affect us when it comes to money and lead to a lot of self-sabotaging behaviors. So a very simple example would be something pertaining to you've done something with your money in the past. Let's say uh, you bought a specific stock or you put money in this real estate investment or whatever, and then it didn't turn out well, right? Because, you know, a certain set of circumstances happened. And then now, you know, it's five years later, whatever, and you're unwilling to experience any circumstances that are remotely similar to that in regards to investing your money because these two situations resemble one another. So it's almost like how trauma works in a sense of it's very emotional, it's not logical, and we group things together in a very quick black and white way of like, this is another one of those, I'm going to avoid that. And while that can protect us, it also really, really keeps us stuck more often than not because our brains are excellent guessing machines and aggregation machines, but they're not excellent accuracy machines, meaning that they're pretty good at getting most things fairly right, but they're not good at all at getting most things extremely correct. And so this presents a big problem for association bias. So that's number one. Number two that I want to get into is what's referred to as reward and punishment bias. So the easiest way to explain this one is that we become overly optimistic after wins and we become overly pessimistic after losses. And this single bias is what creates what's referred to as investor psychology. If any of you have ever seen the graphs of investor psychology where there's all sorts of different emotions that the market goes through, everything from greed to euphoria to hope, denial, despair, depression, and then these cycles repeat. I definitely skipped some there, but you get the idea. So what happens because of the way that our amygdalas work and our cerebellum and our prefrontal cortex and some of these faculties of our brains, some of which are really advanced, some of which are really primal, is when we have recent wins in the past, our brain floods those circuits with dopamine. And that's really good. It has a lot of evolutionary purposes that I won't get into. And it feels good, which is nature's way of incentivizing us doing more of it. But the problem is because it feels so good and it creates that dopamine, dopamine makes us, when we have, you know, high levels of dopamine, we're much more likely to have inflated confidence. And so the wins that we've experienced in the recent past create more dopamine and the higher levels of dopamine create this higher sense of confidence, whether or not it should be high. And this poses a unique cocktail for vulnerability, if you will, because when things have been good, like just think of the stock market, right? When things are going up, 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 everyone's all about it. It's only going to keep getting better. Everyone thinks up only. And then more relevant example when I'm putting this out in early 2023 is when things have been bad, people are overly pessimistic after losses. So for example, the stock market has gone down for about the last a little over a year straight now. So we've been in a bear market, regardless of what the Fed or the government will admit to you. We've been in a bear market and a recession for about a year now. 
And you can look at any chart and clearly see that it's been going down, 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 down with only small little relief rallies in between. And so because of this situation we've been in for about a year, whenever we have slightly positive news, everyone is overly pessimistic about it and instantly shoots it down that, oh, it doesn't matter. We're still going lower. And that mindset, that psychology, it's really helpful evolutionarily, once again, to weather your expectations. And in the past, it likely really helped to keep us alive and things of this nature, limit our risks, our risk taking specifically. But in a 2023 world, and especially in relationship to wealth and freedom, this is one of the biggest hindrances for people is it leads them to buy at way too high of prices, to buy way too late in the market cycle, and it leads them to sell at too low of market prices and to have held on for way too long. And then that cycle repeats because now because they sold late, they don't want to buy back in again because they're pessimistic it's going to go lower and they're trying to wait for the absolute bottom to try to time the bottom. And markets don't work like that. The whales take profits first. They're not trying to time the top. Usually they cause the top because then retail wants to sell. And then the whales are buying while everyone else is scared before people pile in when the price has already started to go back up. So this reward and punishment bias is really, really applicable in financial markets. So I wanted to give that example there. Number three is self-interest and incentives bias. The easiest way to explain this is that people who get rewarded for stupid things keep doing them. I know that's kind of a funny way to say it, but it is the most accurate way to say it. So Let's think of some really easy examples here about human nature, things that we continue to repeat. What stupid things do we get rewarded for? Well, let's look at our governmental structure. When the government and the Federal Reserve, in combination, in synergy, decide to print money and expand the M2 money supply of elastic currency in the United States market, they are rewarded for that by what happens in the economy. For example, stock prices start going up. Economic indicators start looking positive. Everyone's bullish and happy. Everyone's making money. But turning on the money printer and expanding our money supply, especially at the rates that they do, is kicking the can down the road and a very toxic way to manage free markets give you another example. If you know anything about economics, you know that giving people free money is an extremely stupid idea. And yet that's what we did in 2020. Stimulus checks. Everyone was stoked to get their stimulus check. Here's the problem. People who get rewarded for stupid things keep doing them. So in this case, in these examples, I'm using the example of our government because our government at a conceptual and educational level, they understand the issues, what they're doing. But when they do it, there's such positive feedback and it works so well amongst the masses and sentiment that they can't help themselves. Another example is think of investing. For those of you who have any sort of background in investing, even if you don't really know what you're doing, but you've invested before, think about have you ever invested in something extremely 
that you did not know much about at all. You basically just put your money into it. You did not do your hours and hours of due diligence. You just went off of a whim. I heard this is going to go up or whatever it may be. And you put money into something. And then that investment actually went up. And you were thinking, I'm a fucking genius. What were you likely to do? You're likely to either buy more or not sell or sell it and do it again. And guess what? I bet in the next time or two, you lost all your money, didn't you? This is the issue with self-interest and incentives bias. When we get rewarded for doing stupid things, we tend to keep doing them until we no longer get rewarded for doing the stupid things. Once again, this is largely because of how our dopamine centers work in the brain, and dopamine is a hell of a drug. Out of our four main neurotransmitters, dopamine is the one that has everything to do with addiction, motivation, drive, and taking action, and it can really take us over and blind us. So number four is self-serving and optimism bias. So how does this one destroy your wealth and freedom? Well, what we tend to do in relation to self-serving and optimism bias is overestimate the degree of control that we have over events and our prediction abilities. So this one is hopefully pretty straightforward. Humans suck at predicting events. Humans suck at controlling the external world. And yet we have something called an ego and our ego convinces us because it has to in order for it to feel at all safe that we are in control. It really convinces us that we're in control, but we are not in control at all. We tend to inflate the control that we have. And it's one thing to have this conversation around like the ego and trying to control things and that might affect your levels of peace in life. But specifically, this conversation today is all about how these 19 biases really affect your levels of wealth and freedom in life. And so on a more 3D level, in terms of wealth and money, if you're overestimating the amount of control you have over events and your prediction abilities, you're very likely to approach investing as if it's gambling. I'll give you a really good example that I see a lot with my students. People come in the group and they think that investing is basically just gambling. And so they want to ask me about, you know, what do you think about this shitcoin in crypto? Or what do you think about this extremely small cap stock that's very contrarian? Or what do you think about this short-term option or whatever it may be? Or I also get a lot of questions like, what's going to happen to the price of X in the next month? And I'm always fascinated by this. You know, I have students who still ask me this, even though I answer the same way every time. No one has a crystal ball. Anyone who's in the financial space and claims to know what's going to happen is a fucking liar. And you should exit stage right immediately and be very skeptical to listen to anyone who is claiming that they know what's going to happen in the future. But so many of us do. We really think that we have control over not only events, but prediction abilities that involve far more people than just our immediate reality. And our minds are the reason. When I say our minds, I mean our ego. This ability to have an ego and the way that it works and the way that it tricks us into thinking that we are it 
it traps us in these pockets of reality that make it really, really easy to fall victim to these biases where we actually think that we're a lot smarter than we are. And we think that, you know, the world kind of revolves around us in a sense. And we forget that nature optimizes for the whole. It optimizes for all of life and it doesn't give a shit about the human species particularly. But we think it does. And this can get us into a lot of trouble when it comes to growing wealth, where to put your money, and like an overconfidence and an arrogance in your investing because you're so confident that blank will happen. And then when it doesn't happen, you're screwed. And, you know, this happened to me a lot when I was newer to investing. And I didn't realize that investing has nothing to do with trying to guess the future. But most people think that it does. Hey, guys, really quick, exciting announcement for you. We have decided to offer $1,000 in a surprise giveaway to one lucky Conscious Wealth Podcast supporter. All you have to do is leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So rate the show five out of five stars, as well as let us know how you're liking the show in a few sentences. And lastly, screenshot your publicly submitted podcast review and email it to jess.alignedsolutions at gmail.com to enter yourself to potentially win. That is J-E-S-S period A-L-I g-n-e-d solutions at gmail.com the winner will be randomly chosen on the last day of the month may the odds be ever in your favor now let's get back to the show so bias number five is what's referred to as self-deception and denial bias Self-deception and denial bias is most easily explained by saying that we deny and distort reality via stories and narratives to make sense of our own lack of control. This is one of my favorite ones. If you think about how the ego works, the ego, its number one concern is not dying. Now, this is interesting because you're not your ego. So it's to the ego The ego ceasing to exist is the same as your physical body and you dying. They're the same thing. And so certain things that conflict with the ego's existing beliefs, realities, paradigms, etc., or challenge the ego in an uncomfortable way that makes it feel like it's going to be out of control, out of the driver's seat, it can't handle that. So what it does is it will conveniently hide parts of reality from you. It will deny parts of reality from you, and it will distort parts of reality from you or to you in the way of, you know, telling yourself a convenient story or a rationalization or a narrative or a justification to cleverly make sense of the fact that the ego is not in any semblance of control over what happens. And that is the scariest thing in the world to our ego construct because the ego's number one job that it works tirelessly 24-7 to try to do is not die. And lack of control is very synonymous with death to the ego. It will not let go. It does not want to let go. So rather than letting go and accepting, I have no control here. That's the scariest thing to the ego. Rather than that, it will just 
deny, distort, create justifications, rationalizations, and these become the stories that we tell ourselves. And this is a very slippery slope when, well, in life in general. But when we start to talk about making high-level moves with money, investments, business, credit, etc., this becomes a really big issue. Because if we haven't mastered ourself and our own ego, and we're not able to be radically transparent and aware of the stories and the rationalizations and the narratives that we tell ourselves in our own personal life about our own personal shortcomings, relationships, aspirations, setbacks, etc., emotions. If we're not able to do that, how can we expect to be any semblance of honest, logical, or rational when it comes to things completely outside of our control that have way more complexity, involve way more people, and way more factors outside of our control, right? It's one thing to have this conversation around your own emotions. You could try to argue you can control your emotions, even though I don't believe you can. But it's another thing when you're talking about financial markets or banks or investment decisions that involves so many more moving pieces, so much more complexity, and the ego can't handle that. It doesn't like to feel out of control. So it will create really simple, convenient, black and white, feel-good stories for itself to justify its incompetence. So this one is particularly meaningful for me because if you're a spiritual investor, this is one that you really, really have an opportunity to have an unfair advantage in by all of the inner work and the spiritual awareness work that you can do to become the observer of your eye construct and not get caught up in its stories and distortions and be able to view them. Third-party viewer looking down. And that gives you such a radical advantage in life in general, and that translates heavily to the financial markets. Number six on our human biases list today is what's called consistency and sunk cost bias. The more invested into something we are, the harder it becomes to change our stance. Sunk cost bias is something that I see come up a lot in my life. I'll give you some easy examples. You invested heavily into something, heavily is relative, so whatever amount of money that you consider a lot is, would be classified as heavily. So you invested a lot into a particular stock or crypto project in, let's say, January 2021, right before everything fell off a cliff. And six months later, you're now down 75%. And the whole way down, you thought to yourself, I should sell. I should sell. I should sell. But I've already invested so much money into this. I might as well just ride it out. And before you know it, a few more months pass. Now you're down 90%. And you're thinking, fuck, I should have sold. I knew I should have sold. But you didn't. Why didn't you? Well, the more invested into something that we are, the harder it becomes to change our stance. That was a financial example. That's really, really hard to learn. I'm just letting you know. Let me give you different examples. I'll give you a business example because business relates to wealth and freedom too, right? It's a great vehicle to wealth. 
So sometimes we'll start a business and we might be seeing some level of success or we're not seeing the level of success we desire. Either way, in either of those situations, let's say we've put in three years at this point into building this business. When we consider the notion of, you know, our friends are like, yo, you don't even like seem to love this anymore. Like, why don't you do something you're very passionate about? And your answer is always, I can't. I've put too much into it. I have to make this work. And this is extremely common. So the sunk cost that ends up biasing us can be time. Like if you've invested years into something, it becomes really fucking hard to turn around and go back to start. If you've invested a lot of money into something, it becomes really fucking hard to do that. To use the example of relationships, a lot of people stay in relationships that they're not absolutely fucking ecstatic about, which by the way, you shouldn't be in a relationship you're not absolutely fucking ecstatic about, but that's a conversation for another time. A lot of people stay in relationships like this because of sunk cost bias. They're thinking, well, shit, we've been together for seven years. What the hell would I even do? I've invested so much into this relationship. I'm not willing to sever ties and have to sit with the reality that, quote unquote, my ego believes this was all a waste of my time and this was all for nothing. Even though we know that from a spiritual lens, that is not how the world works. Everything is a stepping stone. There are no coincidences. One journey prepares you for the next, even though you can't see it yet. The ego doesn't think that way. And the ego perceives sunk costs as huge things to avoid. And this really gets in the way of people's wealth creation because we tend to sell winners too soon in terms of investments and we tend to cut losers way too late and that can really mess with your ROIs over time. So transitioning to bias number seven out of the 19 human biases, we have perceived loss bias. This is another really good one, has a lot of evolutionary merit to it. So the easiest way to explain this one is that we perceive losses way more painfully and viscerally than we perceive wins. Another way of saying this is that our fear of loss greatly exceeds our desire for potential of gain. Now, why is this? Well, let's go back a few thousand years. We're on the savannah. Once again, love my savanna examples. So we're like Neanderthals, right? And we're in like small tribes and shit. And we're having to hunt and protect ourselves and create fires and shelter and such. And all of a sudden, you're alone going to the bathroom or something. And you come across a massive mountain lion. And that mountain lion, when you come across that mountain lion, you have about two seconds to make a split second reaction and your conscious mind isn't even fast enough to make that decision for you. So your subconscious mind, which can take in way more, I think it's something about 10 times the amount of bit rate information per second, makes that decision for you and you dip out of there really fast and run as fast as you can. Your conscious mind didn't make that decision for you, right? So what I'm explaining is that it's extremely important when you're on the savanna to be way more sensitive to the threat of danger, the fear of loss, loss of your life, loss of whatever. 2023, we don't really have the fear of loss of our life most of the time. So it's been replaced by loss of money, loss of love, loss of status, loss of recognition, loss of safety, loss of validation, 
loss of freedom. These things feel synonymous to dying to our ego. And so evolutionarily, it made sense that we needed to perceive danger way more acutely, quickly, and sensitively than, let's say, we stumbled upon an orchard with a bunch of fresh fruit. That's awesome. But it wouldn't do the same thing for us to the same degree as stumbling across a wild animal that wants to eat your fucking organs for dinner. So it makes sense why these parts of our brain are the way they are and how we evolved. But in 2023, this can be a real burden for a lot of people because number one, if you let these older parts of your brain run the show that have this large aversion to fear of loss, what you end up doing is you become one of those people who values safety and security over freedom. That's ultimately what an employee is and what an employee does on a core values level. And this is something I have all of my students assess for themselves. There's different ways you can assess this, but it's really important to derive what is your main one or two core values, your main drivers as far as the basic human needs go. And a lot of people's is safety and security. And what that's actually saying, when you're one of those people that says, I value consistency, safety, security, stability, what you're actually saying is, I'm really fearful of loss versus the person that says, I value freedom, even at the expense of my perceived safety and security. That type of person is usually an entrepreneur. And that person has trained themselves to desire the potential for gain, even though it's just a potential, it's not even guaranteed, but just the potential of gain is more desirable than their smaller self's fear of loss. And this is wired into all of us. So it's important that you understand that when I say that, no one's just born that way. You have to train it into yourself. I had to first train all of that fear of loss out of myself, all the voices of why I couldn't do it and the judgments and the people around me. But then you also have to really, really entrain the desire to take risks and being less risk averse and really, really getting more confident and certain on, you know, the things that you want to gain and feeling worthy of those things. And so to kind of come full circle here and wrap this one up, this is a bias that we're all subject to. And so when things don't pan out, it sticks in our brains way stickier than when things do pan out. So I want you to think of, I mean, I could use so many examples, like to use a financial example. For those of you that have made investments, I want you to think about your last really shitty investment. Go ahead. Now, how does that feel when you think about that? And how quickly did that come to your mind? Probably feels pretty shitty and it probably came to your mind pretty quickly, probably stood out, like especially if you lost a lot of money, like your biggest loss, okay? And then now I want you to think about a recent investing win that you've had. Did that come to your mind as quickly? Does it feel as good when you think about it? Our brains want to hyperfixate on the negative. It's why the news is so effective. We can't solely blame the media companies because we are the customer paying for the service with our eyeballs. There's a reason people like drama and news and things that are quote unquote stressful and sympathetic. It's because we are more concerned 
with avoiding losses than we are with the potential of gain because we're animals with egos. And the ego's biggest fear is dying. It's ceasing to exist. So 24-7, 365, it is trying to plan, control, distort, protect, prevent dying. And it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. You got to laugh at that. So number eight on our list of biases, we got a few more and then we'll wrap up, is status quo bias. Status quo bias says that resistance arises when we try to change our behaviors. We're more bothered by action than inaction. So let's unpack this one. When we talk about status quo, usually we're talking about like societal notions, societal expectations, cultural programming, if you will, right? The status quo. And one thing that happens when we try to change our behaviors is we find ourselves running into what feels like almost like entropy. It feels like resistance. It feels like we have to apply force. And this, I mean, we can look at this from a physics lens. An object at rest tends to stay at rest. An object in motion tends to stay in motion. We can look at this from a more spiritual lens of like if you're in a certain vibration or a certain season of your life and then you're trying to attune to a higher vibration or enter a new uh, timeline in a different dimension, different ways of thinking about this, there is going to be more tests. You're going to have to prove that you're kind of worthy of this new level, right? And so resistance arises. Now that's just one example. Another way that this bias and probably a more common way that this bias really gets in our way is let's think of some sort of monetary example where you've been investing a certain way and now all of a sudden you need to change your strategy or you've been doing business a certain way and you need to change your approach or you've been in a certain business or a certain field of investment and you need to modify your behaviors. You're going to experience a lot of resistance. And another interesting kind of note on this realm of status quo bias is that we're more bothered by action than inaction. Meaning, when we go to change things up, it doesn't feel good to take the new actions. We would rather not do anything. We would rather stick to the status quo of what we've been doing. So let's think about like huge financial scandals or like government monetary or fiscal policy. Do you notice how slowly things change and how sometimes like, for example, let's say like the Bernie Madoff scandal, right? That's pretty popular on Netflix right now. Highly recommend watching it for some background on how corrupt the markets are and how incompetent the SEC is. So like this dude for three to four decades pulled off a Ponzi scheme with tens, he might have even broke a hundred billion, but let's just say tens of billions assets under management without ever investing a single dollar of his client's money. He would just take the money, put it in the bank account, and then use new people buying into him supposedly investing for them to pay out older people, and that was the Ponzi scheme to keep it going. Now, he did this for four decades, okay, with mass amounts of attention on him, SEC scrutiny, et cetera, et cetera, and never got in trouble. How did they take four decades to catch this dude? Well, we tend to have a hard time changing the way that we do things, if that makes sense. We tend to want to stick to the status quo. And so 
An easy example of this is like governments and regulatory agencies. They're really slow. They're really far behind. And the reason for that is because of status quo bias. You could think of status quo bias as the exact opposite, the inverse of innovation. It's a dragging your feet approach to change and doing things in newer, better, more efficient, more effective, fairer ways. And it's not just governments that are predisposed to this, right? Because governments are just aggregated groups of people. It's us. We have a hard time going against the grain and breaking out of the status quo. And so this is one reason why I always seek to be a contrarian, because I know that most people struggle to change their behaviors to go against the way things have been done. And that provides really unique opportunities to do things a different way. All right. So I'm going to go over one last one, and then we're going to wrap up part one, and then we'll get into part two and we'll cover the final 10-ish biases. So number nine, impatience bias. This is a funny one. They've done a lot of rat studies. They've done human studies. There's a lot of fascinating evidence affirming how impatience bias works. And it basically says that we would rather have a small reward now than a much larger one later. So quick kind of layout of how the studies usually go. They would offer people $5 and they can have it immediately and be done or wait something like three months and they could have $50. And the vast majority of people would just choose $5 right now, even though it is astronomically more worth it to be patient. And it's not even that long of a wait, three months, but the vast majority of people choose now. They've done other studies with food where you can have like a quick snack now and they, they're testing hungry people. Or you can have like a feast, but you have to wait like six hours. People choose now. Now, let's think about how do the 1% actually build like ridiculous levels of wealth? Well, one of the biggest ways that they build ridiculous levels of wealth is by what's referred to as compound interest, isn't it? Compounding. They buy things whether it's real estate, stocks, bonds, companies, portfolios, etc. They buy things and they hold them for a long, long time. Now, impatience bias says that our predisposition as humans is that we would rather have a smaller reward now, i.e. take profits, than a much larger one later, i.e. be patient let your ROIs compound and sell at a much later date for a much larger sum. This is the very bias that points out why investing is so difficult for so many people, even though it's so simple. We have a bias towards impatience. And so as I go through this list, not only am I educating you on the biases so that you can be more aware of them, And so that you can have more examples of them. I have my students make a cheat sheet of this and really be running through this before making any financial investment, et cetera, decisions. Seriously. But I don't expect all of you to necessarily do that. You'd be smart if you did. But regardless, one thing that should be standing out to you is not only like how each of these work and the educational piece, but also you should be starting to see that a lot of these biases are what pose such big opportunities in terms of wealth and freedom if you can overcome these biases. And that is what I'm all about. And that's why I love studying this stuff, human nature, psychology, neuroscience, 
even like evolutionary psychology and stuff like that, evolutionary biology. Because if you can understand the animal that is the human, you have such an advantage in life. So we're going to wrap up part one here, like I said, and make sure to tune in in a few days for our next episode. And we'll pick up right where we left off and we'll finish part two. And we'll start off with bias 10 and then we'll go all the way through 19. Hope this was valuable for you guys. We'll see you soon. Peace and love.